UCB Life Issues with Paul Hammond. And as always, a very warm welcome to Life Issues, where, well, many, many years ago now, I came across a book called The Week That Changed the World. It was a day-by-day journey through the events and key moments of the week that leads to Good Friday and the incredible reality of Easter weekend. What it did for me was not so much shine a light on things I didn't know about Easter, but accentuate how so often we seem to neglect the primary significance of this festival that we call Easter. It truly was a week that changed the world. It truly is a festival that should shine the light of hope and grace into a dark world. It might even be argued that it is truly of greater significance than all the fuss we make around Christmas. That book is long out of print now, and no, you can't borrow my copy. But I was thrilled to discover this year that the Bible Society, as part of their Bible Trek series, have a set of videos that do the same, take you from Palm Sunday right the way through to Resurrection Day. Dr. Andrew Ollerton is charged with taking us on that journey, and he's also my guest this week as we wonder about the reality of Easter and the message that it brings for our lives today. So what do you think, Andrew? Do you think we are sometimes a little skew-whiff in our emphasis around Easter? Thanks, Paul. Uh, it's great to be on the show, and uh, happy Easter to all of your listeners. Um, I think in in summary, yes, I think there is a risk that we've, well, I think to some degree we've aped the culture around us, haven't we? Because cult- culturally, Christmas is a, h- a huge deal Easter tends to be a fairly insignificant afterthought. But when you look in scripture, actually, the, in terms of just sheer proportions of pages, you know, you think about Mark's gospel, which doesn't really have a narrative of the nativity story, but a third of the gospel slows down. It's like the gospel is going to slow motion for that final week of Jesus's life. Now, of course, we wouldn't have Easter without Christmas. You know, the incarnation Uh, God coming into human flesh, the word became flesh and dwelled among us, is the prerequisite, the foundation to what happened in that final week. But I mean, we could we could uh, between us, we could speculate on why this might be the case. But I absolutely think we need to put more of the emphasis on Easter. It really is, as you said, the week that changed the world. Yeah. Well, if you want to have a look at the Bible Trek series for yourself, and especially the ones that have been recorded and the notes that be made around Easter, the simplest way to find it is to go to the website, biblesociety.org.uk. Search for Bible Trek. You'll find it there. Andrew is also the author of the Bible course that can be found on the Bible Society website as well. And so maybe we should start with a, a, a sort of... A, an idea, a picture, if you like. Paint us a picture, Andrew, a thumbnail of the world for that very first Easter. Hmm. The entire world. <laughs> well, um, let's zoom in on, on Jerusalem, obviously, where these events unfold. And I think a couple of things to say. Obviously, most, obvi- most obviously, if you've been there, it's under occupation. That's one of the key things that is agitating the situation the Romans have marched in um, way back through their conquest of Judea um, in around 63 BC. 
And since that time, then the Judeans have been uh, not for the first time, but they've been under foreign occupation. And so there's this agitation, this tension, because God's people are in the land, um, you know, in terms of the very big story of scripture here, they're in the land that God had promised to Abraham uh, that the, the, the Exodus had delivered Israel to, to re- recover that promised land of Canaan. They're in that land, but they feel like they're still in exile. You know, that's the metaphor. They feel like they're, I mean, some, some of our listeners may know what it feels like to be, on the one hand, they're living in a house, but it's not home. It's not mm-hmm. safe. It's not how they would want it to be or how they expected it to be. And so with that comes a lot of fervor, in particular in this week, because the final week of Jesus' life, by no coincidence, is Passover, which is the biggest of the festivals that happens. And that's where our Easter calendar uh, always, in terms of the calendar date, always locks onto that Passover weekend. And so from the from the Romans' point of view, this is a dangerous time. They would have moved extra troops back into Jerusalem. Pilate, uh, Pontius Pilate, who we'll pick up on, he normally lived in Caesarea uh, Maritima, which is on the coast, a much more beautiful and coastal place but he would have been back in jerusalem with some of his um guards especially stationed there for this tense time because passover of course celebrated god's deliverance of israel and they felt that was still needed so in terms of the world at that time it's tense there's undercurrents of revolution of uprising um and there's this overlapping of cultures there's the jewish culture um and then there's the roman occupation And that combination of tension and history and an occupying force and the expectation that many Jews, maybe even all Jews would have had, of God's deliverance for them from this occupying experience, to to set them free from the boot Mm. of the oppressor and so on, that kind of really comes to a head with Jesus' actions on Palm Sunday. The Palm Sunday entry into Jerusalem wasn't just about crowds getting excited and throwing their coats on the floor, was it? No, absolutely. And that's really the, the backstory and the build-up to the tension that's that's displayed in that event. Jesus knew what he was doing because, of course, the, the prophecies, um, in particular Zechariah, behold, your king comes meek and riding on a colt, uh, on a donkey. Um, These prophecies, Jesus knew that he was enacting the sense that Israel's hopes were for a deliverer and that he was that deliverer. Now, we'll we'll go on perhaps to talk about the fact he wasn't the deliverer in the way that they thought, but absolutely right. He, he, He knew that this was the moment where Israel, more than any other time in the year, was expectant for a new exodus, a new way out of the oppression that echoed right back to Pharaoh and the, and the slavery in Egypt, the Romans would have been viewed in a similar way. But the other thing that's worth saying is, we, we don't know this for sure, but some have speculated that around the time that Jesus would have ridden down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, on the other side of the city, as I mentioned, Pilate would have been making his entrance into the city, returning as the Roman procurator, the Roman ruler from Caesarea Maritima. So you've almost got this is it is it intentional on Jesus' part? Almost this this echo of mm. the ruler as he thinks he is, and Pilate, and then the true ruler, uh, the King of Kings. And Jesus then, I, I, I say, I say this carefully. He staged this not because not in any fake sense, but in the sense that he wanted us to understand 
that he is the ruler, he is the king, but not as Pilate, not as a Roman with a sword. And you make the point in the video that you've done as part of the Bible Shrek series for this, you make the point that when Jesus rode in, he didn't ride in like a king on a white stallion. He rode in on this colt. He rode in on a donkey. But in some ways, because of the prophecy, because of the the historical anticipation of the Jews, that was a an even bigger statement, even though it's an expression of, as we look back and see humility and him coming to sacrifice himself, for in terms of stirring up the population, that was a far more powerful image than if he'd turned up in a chariot. Well, exactly. And whilst the Romans might have missed the point, to them his mode of transport would have seemed very weak. For the Jewish uh, people who knew the scriptures, this was very significant. This was him saying, it's game on. It's time for exodus. It's time for deliverance. The king is coming to reestablish the kingdom. Um, It's interesting, isn't it? Because in the rest of Jesus' ministry, he's often downplaying expectations around himself. It seems to me on Palm Sunday, he deliberately turns up the volume, but only then to go on to show that it's not with the kind of fight Mm. or revolution that they were expecting. But absolutely right. And and when the crowd then start chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means, you know, God save us, effectively. It's an appeal for salvation. Again, uh, Jesus says if if they don't, you know, cry out, the rocks will cry out. There is a sense in which he is recognizing that the cry of God's people for salvation is about to be fulfilled but just not how they would have thought. And what would it have been like for the disciples then? Because as you say, throughout his life, throughout his ministry, and as they have walked with him over the last three years, he has kind of played down himself. He's given hints about himself and and the reality of what he's come to do, but he hasn't made a beat. And then suddenly they are confronted with the adulation of the crowds as opposed to the sort of desire of the crowds to get what they could out of him. What must that have been like for them? I think at one level, tremendously exciting, because I think the disciples, like all of us, had that ability to almost... With a, with a certain form of spiritual amnesia to forget some of the uncomfortable things Jesus had said and simply to allow yourself to run away that this is the great expectations you've got now being fulfilled. We, we, we can all do that in relationships that we're in, in jobs that we're in. We can turn a blind eye to the bits we don't like and assume something that's not the case. So, so they knew that he'd said, and Peter took Jesus aside when he said this, they knew that he'd said that the Son of Man must suffer and, uh, and, and be handed over to the rulers and die. But it's almost as if they had the ability to blank that out and mm-hmm. just assume that these cries of Hosanna, I, I can only imagine the disciples didn't have a thought in their minds that it would actually turn out the way the week, you know, a week later. Uh, they had no idea that was coming. They were simply riding on the crest of a wave, I think, of popularity. And, and we can all be guilty of that, I think, turning a blind eye simply because the energy and the momentum is driving in a certain yeah. direction. And hindsight can be a wonderful thing, can't it? You- well, that's right. We, I always say to people when they're reading the Bible, just remember, you know, in this case, remember that the disciples hadn't read the Gospels when they were, <laughs> <laughs> when they were starring in the Gospels. They just didn't know. Um, yeah. And the you mentioned uh, the cleansing in the temple there because there's an interesting element in this that that kind of jumps out at me from from what you say about it that that actually when Jesus cleansed the temple he was sending a message that rather than coming to judge and banish the Romans 
He was coming to to bring the challenge to God's people. We would often like God to judge the world rather than challenge us, wouldn't we? Yeah, that's uh, you've hit the nail on the head there, I think. It, it is then the shock for the crowds that having been celebrated as the fulfillment of Israel's hopes, he then turns on Israel's temple. Um, in their minds, it's the Roman barracks or the Roman guard that needed to be confronted. But in Jesus' mind, clearly the compromise of God's people is at the heart of the judgment that God is enacting on the nation through, but it, as it will turn out, through the body and blood of the very Messiah himself. He, he will take that curse. He will take that judgment. But there is an, an enacting of and, and you notice in the Old Testament, so many of the prophets didn't just give speeches or oracles. They also embodied or enacted mm. what was going on. And I think as Jesus took that whip and drove them out of the temple, um, he is cleansing the house of God that was meant to be a, a house of prayer for all nations. And exactly as you say, he's reminding us that God's biggest problem <laughs> is so often not with the world, but with the church. It's our own compromise that needs to be resolved for the world to then believe. Something perhaps to reflect on this Easter. My guest for this week's podcast is Dr. Andrew Ollerton. He is the driving force behind the Bible Trek series for the Bible Society. He's also the author of the Bible course, biblesociety.org.uk, to find out more. As we explore this week the reality of Easter and the reality of what it was like. One of the big images from the Easter story is the Passover meal celebration, where Jesus says he wanted to celebrate Passover, that upper room time, with his disciples before he went to the judgment that would come to him. Why is Passover so significant to the Easter story, Andrew? Well, I think just um, so just to frame it for our listeners, what, what you then have in terms of the timetable for this week is that Sunday, uh, the beginning of the week, Jesus arrives, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Monday and Tuesday, Monday, he cleanses the temple. Tuesday, he teaches in the temple. Not exactly sure what he did on Wednesday. And then by Thursday, on Thursday evening, it is the time to celebrate Passover. The significance here is firstly to say that the, the population of Jerusalem would have swelled to double its size at this moment because so many pilgrims who lived outside of the city would have traveled back in. And the significance of this, of course, is that it was the Exodus story. It was the story of God's people under oppression in Egypt and the Passover lamb, the sacrifice, the blood on the doorposts uh, was the key dynamic from which Pharaoh's will was broken and Israel's freedom was enacted. And so as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. This isn't just any old week. It's the week in which that backstory of freedom and deliverance through sacrifice, notice that through blood, through sacrifice, deliverance will come to God's people. Obviously then that event, the Passover event, in order that God's people would remember it became part of a meal and these symbolic foods um, in Jerusalem, you can go to the, the room or the space that's thought to be the location where that Passover meal was had. And Jesus, as you read in the Gospels, he carefully chose that upper room. He made sure that his disciples made the careful preparations so that all the symbolic foods were laid out when he then radically reinterpreted that meal around himself. 
And I suppose for the disciples, it would have started in a very sort of ordinary way, but very quickly with him washing their feet, for example. He starts to reframe this sense that that his purpose is not to come and win a great victory and ride off into the sunset. His purpose is to surrender himself to achieve that great victory. I mean, that's hard enough for us to understand when we know what happened a few days later. For them, it must have been an incredible challenge to the faith they'd put in this man. I think so. I think there's nothing more disturbing than when someone messes with your deep traditions, the, the traditions, the stories that make sense of the world for you. And Jesus is very much messing with because they've been through this meal every year from when they were born through to this moment. So let's assume at least 30 times they'd been ingrained in a particular pattern and process of tradition and storytelling. And when Jesus then takes hold of some of the key emblems, and as you've mentioned, it begins in John's account with this washing of the disciples' feet, this disturbing sense in which your master is kneeling at your feet. I mean, there's the awkwardness of that. There's the sense that you no longer quite understand who he is if he's doing that because it's a displacing of his identity as you understand it. His role, his significance is displaced when he's there like a slave. You know, that's that's the person. If you didn't wash your own feet, a slave did it for you. Mm. And here's the master. It doesn't make sense. But then even more so, I think, as we come to the meal itself, you know, famously, he took the flatbread, the matzo bread, um, which symbolized the rush departure of Israel from Egypt. And as he took that bread and broke it, there was a, uh, there was liturgy, words he was meant to say, but he didn't say it. He said, this is my body, um, as we know. So, so I think you're absolutely right. How disturbing, how confusing, disorientating that Passover meal would have been for the disciples. And what is the justification, the validation of Jesus reframing this Passover meal tradition, even though there are elements of it and elements in the modern Passover where you look at them and you go, God, that is so obviously talking about what was going to happen to Jesus with his body being hidden in the ground and so on and so forth. It's so obvious, the the, the parallels there. From from what Jesus was trying to convey, not only to his disciples, but to us, what is him reframing the Passover, reframing the Exodus story to, around himself? What is it doing? Well, I think firstly, it's, you're right to note that the parallels are the key. It's where he does things very deliberately, whether it's taking the bread and then the cup. There were four cups that structured the meal. And it sounds like from what Paul later says that it was the cup of thanksgiving that Jesus took, which is probably the third cup. In other words, before the meal was finished, completed with the fourth cup, he interrupts it again to say, this is now a new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. And, and obviously in doing that, he's, he's making it clear there's forgiveness of sins. There's a new relationship with God. But somehow that will be purchased by the body, uh, symbolized by the bread, and by the blood symbolized by the wine of, of Jesus. It'll only be later through the cross and later reflection that they will that they'll put those two and two together. But I also think there's so many other you know, parallels that play out more slowly. So you find, you know, for example, that when the blood was daubed onto the doorposts of the houses by the Israelites in Egypt, it was to be done using a hyssop branch. And it's later on a hyssop branch 
we read that a that wine vinegar was offered to Jesus. You know, there's these beautiful little symbols that are captured in the historical narrative. And again, you know, some have speculated, is that the fourth cup? Is it that when he drinks that and cries out, it is finished, the Passover mm. is being completed at the point of his sacrifice? Maybe that's going too far, but the point is somehow through what he is achieving and accomplishing, the story of freedom will play out not just for Israel, but for the world. And so whilst physical freedom is not to be um, neglected or insignificant, there's something deeper, more spiritual going on here. It's as if Jesus is saying the physical freedom that Israel experienced through the Exodus was only ever a picture or a shadow of the reality the real freedom that human hearts are crying out for just as much today, the real freedom that we seek and desire will be found through the body and blood of Jesus. I mean, that's the big message. That's a hard one, though, isn't it, to to communicate to a world that is driven by material, as would have been the case in Jesus' time, a world that's driven by material realities, material concerns, so at the time of Jesus, they, there was conflict. There were there was um, their nation was was in, had been invaded and was an occupied nation. There are parallels to what we've seen recently in Europe. Here, that people were were caught up with trying to not necessarily trying to make a fortune, but trying to make ends meet because there would have been deprivation, there would have been poverty, there are all those sorts of things. And in a world where those echoes are around us, to actually come and say, well, actually, you know, don't, don't, don't worry about what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear. There is more to life than these things. That's a very hard message for people to get their head around. How does the image of the Passover maybe enhance that for us? I think that's a tough question, actually, because I think you're right that at least on the surface level, if they'd had a choice, you know, I can either defeat sin and death or I can get rid of the Romans. <laughs> How many would actually have jumped at the chance to improve their security, comfort, wealth and prosperity by getting rid of the Romans? And there's something in us as human beings that is uh, short-sighted. Uh, I think would be the way I put it. We, we often assume that if I could just have a pay rise and a hot, warmer holiday um, and a better car, those would be the things that sort me out. And and to that kind of desire, Jesus will always be a disappointment because that's not his mission. It's not to say that he won't give us some of those things as extra blessings, but his pr fundamental mission is to deal with our ultimate enemy of sin and death. And so I think the Passover meal helps because it brings into sharp focus what do human beings actually need? What is it that will truly bring freedom? That's the, that's the word that's at stake in that Passover meal. It's the word freedom. And what Jesus is doing is saying, it's a new covenant with God that we need. It's forgiveness of sins through my blood that we need. It's the, it's the author of life saying, actually, you will find your freedom only when you reconnect with me. If you simply have more stuff you will never have true life, um, salvation. And so I think those words are the, the key to it, the Passover meal, the words of Jesus. This is now a new covenant mm. in my blood, the forgiveness of sins. He's going to the heart of what we humans need. 
You're listening to UCB Life Issues. I'm Paul Hammond. My guest this week is Andrew Ollerton. Andrew is the driving force behind the Bible Society's Bible Trek series. He presents the series. He's also the author of the Bible course that the Bible Society do. You can find out more by going to biblesociety.org.uk. And I suppose in some ways, Andrew, what we're talking about today is we journey through Easter week. I mean, that, that's the essence of what you do with the Bible course, isn't it? It is about going, hey, this is actually relevant for now. It's not just about 2,000 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. I think the relevance question stops a lot of us in our tracks. Is it worth it? You know, even if even if you can prove that the Bible's reliable, is it relevant? But when you get into these stories and inhabit them, you realize that they, they are profoundly relevant. They transform the person from the inside out. They are the exodus. They are the new way of freedom. But we have to give time to that and we also have to communicate it well and through bible track through the bible course these resources are really just trying to help ordinary people make sense of you know we've as we've been talking our conversation is reaching back two thousand years it's mm. not entirely obvious what these things mean but with a little bit of explanation it's amazing uh, how much it speaks today yeah and as I said, you can find out more by going to biblesociety.org.uk. So the Passover meal comes to an end. The betrayer is identified, and Jesus goes out into the Garden of Gethsemane, and things start to unpack. Take us through the the Good Friday, oh, I suppose Maundy Thursday, into Good Friday experience of the arrest, the trial, and ultimately the journey to the cross. Mm. I have to say the Garden of Gethsemane is a very moving place to to go because you really feel that you're it's it's outside the city walls. It's an olive grove. Uh, in fact, some of the olive trees have been uh, dated there way back to the time of Jesus. And I found that quite moving, just putting your hand on one of these trees and thinking this was here when he swept drops of blood um, in that location, which is what Luke describes. So in terms of what trans transpired in terms of the events, Jesus went out finished abruptly the Passover meal with no sense of completion. Uh, they sang a hymn and left, headed out to the Mount of Olives. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, he obviously moves some distance away from the disciples. They fall asleep. He asks them to watch and pray, but they fall asleep again. And there's this sense in which they still don't get <laughs> the significance of what's up. He gets it. You know, he, and I, I love this beautiful symmetry. He wrestles with this cup that he imagines in his hands he asks father if this cup can pass from me please let it do so you know he's he knows that he's just put into the hands of his disciples the cup of forgiveness but in order to fulfill that forgiveness for them he must take this other cup and this goes back to the prophets who speak of the cup of god's wrath god's judgment Jesus knows he will have to drink that experience in order to put the cup of forgiveness in our hands that we might know the freedom. So that interruption, the, the interruption then comes from Judas. He brings the the, the, the temple guard. And of course, the, he, Jesus is arrested. He, he then is taken to Caiaphas's house, the high priest. And again, you can go there. It's just on the outskirts of Jerusalem and see the what remains of the courtyard in which Peter famously denied Christ three times. And I don't know about you, Paul. I find that a really moving and emotional place uh, because I think deep down, I know there's a Peter in me. Uh, there's yeah. been times where I've denied Christ. I've not lived boldly and clearly for him. I've preferred 
to try and keep company with others and not lose face. So it doesn't take a great leap, does it, to imagine ourselves sitting by that fire and swearing and saying, no, we don't know anything about it. Because there is that there is that fear of the judgment of the world around us when we choose to identify with a saviour who died on a cross. Absolutely. And I think the, the the Gospels, particularly Mark, paints quite a stark picture of the absolute desertion of Jesus. It's not like Peter was the only one who denied him. Everyone fled. Mark has this, this idea, even he, he identifies this young man who fled and he was so desperate to get away he left his tunic behind as they grabbed hold of it and fled naked through the garden. You just, you imagine someone running naked away from Jesus effectively, as if to say that's how much they wanted to get out of there to avoid trouble. And I think that we have to do some soul searching at that point and recognize there's something of that fight or flight. There's something of that flight in all of us from owning Christian faith and Mm -hmm. owning the truth of Jesus because of fear, because of the fear of man, because of desire to fit in and to be approved and, And yet what we find is it's Jesus then who experiences the deepest form of rejection. You know, his rejection is layered up. It's it's rejection by Israel and the Jewish leaders, but then it's rejection by his own disciples. He's invested his whole, he's just washed the feet of Judas and they will lead him and kiss him and betray him to his death. It's, It's the darkest form of rejection. I think for those of us who've known rejection some of our listeners will have felt and tasted the pain of that especially most painful when it's someone closest to us jesus has been there you know part of what that 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 easter week says is he's been there he knows and a lot is made in the the conversation around this time of how the crowd changed their mind from the adulation of palm sunday to the crucify him on good friday but as you say, in some ways, the worst had already been done. Those who were closest to him had betrayed him or abandoned him or denied him. I mean, in some ways, wasn't a lot left. No, I think that's true. And I think you do sense a, a mood a mood change from when Jesus is at Caiaphas's house, the high priest, to when he's transferred to Pilate and sentenced to crucifixion. And the mood change is partly in Jesus himself. If you listen, read carefully Jesus's conversation with Pilate, he's quite matter of fact. He's quite, unlike the more um, incendiary things that he says before the high priest about being the son of man and quoting Daniel 7 before Pilate, he's quite matter of fact. And although that is the case, the the words that he says in, in that period, the sayings of Jesus the journey of Jesus to the cross, the experience of the the flogging that he had. I mean, the things that he actually says from the cross, they are some of the most poignant expressions of the gospel message that we find in any of the gospels, aren't they? They are. And the journey from Pilate sentencing him to crucifixion through to the cross captures several really poignant moments. I mean, one of them is the fact that the crowd have a choice made uh, presented to them by Pilate. Do you want to release Barabbas or Jesus, this so-called king of the Jews? And, and I just think that's an incredible moment, isn't it? You know, Barabbas is clearly the guilty one. Jesus is clearly the innocent one. Pilate's wife is saying, don't have anything to do with this. Pilate knows that there's no charge that he can really get to stick against Jesus. So the clearly guilty one is released 
and the clearly innocent one is condemned. And, and in that, you have the exchange of the cross captured beautifully in, in, in real people. Barabbas goes free. Jesus is crucified. And then he's taken to the to the courtyard of the guards. There they flog him. I mean, that in itself could have killed a man. These, these leather strands with bone and metal woven into them to rip out the flesh of the victim, even bones ripped out of the back. You know, Jesus is reduced to a piece of meat, really. And then so much so that he as he travels down the journey, which was probably around four to six hundred meters from that location where he was flogged to Golgotha, where he was actually crucified. You know, that's known today as the Via de la Rosa. You can walk that in Jerusalem. It means the way of pain or suffering. And some of the videos in Bible Trek pick up on that route. But there it's where he famously crumples to the floor and Simon of Cyrene is carrying the cross for him. And then we arrive at Golgotha. And you're absolutely right. I think some of what is most striking, given the agony, you know, the Romans used crucifixion only for the worst of criminals and particularly the death of slaves to inflict maximal pain and brut brutal discomfort. So, you know, when you're, when you're facing the most brutal execution known to man, for Jesus to say some of the most beautiful things mm. in the most brutal treatment is an absolute revelation of who he is and, and the, the beauty of his character. Yeah. The day goes through and eventually we get to that point where he says it is finished. In some ways, those standing around would have thought that's it, done, dusted. There's a perhaps a message there about giving up on the message of the gospel, the truth of what God can do, too quickly. Yes, and I think you know this is this is if we'd been in their shoes, the disciples, we would have concluded this is it. You know that there, there is nothing, absolutely nothing, going on there in terms of the visible outward display of what's happening to suggest that this is anything other than another message from Rome, that if you mess with Rome, it will end in defeat. You know, that's, that's ultimately what crucifixion was to say, don't mess with Rome or this is what will happen. And it was public notice in the gospels. This is nine o'clock in the morning through until midday. This is when people, are, and this isn't a Sabbath. Um, you know, this is, this is Friday. It's busy. People are passing. This is, a, this is, People, as people there are spectators, just watching yeah. this, 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 this absolute destruction. Um, almost, you know, crowds jeering and spectating. So, on the one hand, nothing, nothing outwardly says this has any hope, and yet, and yet, the promises of God, the prophecies of the of the prophets, the words of Christ, have spoken hope over. This circumstance, and I do think you're right that there's a, a message there for us that some of our listeners will be facing seeming circumstances of complete defeat, discouragement, failure. But God's promise speaks over that, speaks beyond our circumstances, and ultimately, in, in Jesus' case, it's the promise, as Isaiah 53 put put it, you know, that fa most famous of prophecies that He will He will not allow this to end in defeat but no the, the phrase is that he, after hit the suffering of his soul he will see the light of life mm. and be satisfied what a beautiful picture that is of god's promise over the toughest of circumstances bringing about resurrection hope 
You're listening to UCB Life Issues. I'm Paul Hammond. We are journeying through the Easter week. And when you come to the end of Good Friday, how devastating it must have felt for Mary, for the followers of Jesus, for the disciples who had run and hid, for Peter who had denied that that was it done, that was it dusted. I I sometimes wonder, Andrew, what it was like for them, because Saturday, of course, was Shabbat. What was it like for them that holy day to reflect on what had happened the day before? Hmm. Yeah, we don't know what they did. We know that they rested. They didn't go down to the body and embalm it with spices. They saved that for the Sunday morning because it's Shabbat. We don't know what they did, but we we can glimpse how they must have felt because grief loss, a sense of anger, but also the numb feeling. I mean, for, for many of us who've been through an experience of tragedy and grief, that there's a numbness, a shock. And I'm sure if you, if you think about not only the fact that Jesus is dead, but how he died, to see your master, the one that you followed with such great expectation, brutally crucified, you know, there's, there's a shock factor there as well. So numb, shocked to the core, um, would have been how they would have felt. And in, in effect, what had happened to the body of Jesus was that it was placed in a tomb in the rock um, outside the city walls. Bodies weren't buried within the city walls. They were buried in caves and tombs on the outskirts. And ultimately, what they were expecting was that this was another body uh, that had succumbed to death. What they would do with that body is let it rot away until only the bones remained. And then they would have folded up the bones and placed them in what was known as an ossuary box and then put those bones next to their father's bones. And that's what it meant to be gathered to your fathers effectively. And so in their minds, that's the way Jesus has gone the way of everybody else. He's succumbed to after a brilliant life, he succumbed to a tragic death. Yeah. And I think it's important to remember that again, as we've said, we know how the story turned out. They didn't. But we do know how the story turned out because he is not dead. He is risen. And that was the message of that Sunday morning. Let's celebrate that. But let's also think of the absolute confusion that must have brought when those women came running back from the garden and he is risen. And Peter and John, of course, don't believe a word of it. And they have to go and see for themselves. Yeah, and uh, absolutely. And I think the the shock and disbelief of the disciples is exactly what you would expect if they're facing the unexpected. <laughs> uh, many other scholars have made this point that actually what you find is the reaction that makes sense of people who are not trying to understand that a resurrection has occurred. They're trying to understand. We, we all, as humans, we're all pre-programmed, aren't we, to make sense of the world. And when something doesn't fit, an event doesn't fit within the categories that we have, we will try and crowbar that event into our categories so that we are reassured we know what's happened. And in their case, they think it's grave robbers. You know, that's 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 a category that they recognise. They do not recognise, at least within human history, they do not recognize the category of resurrection. They weren't expecting it. They weren't hoping for it. And so they don't initially, they take some persuading. And that's really genuine and authentic. I, I love the way that uh, Tom Wright, theologian Tom Wright puts it. He says it's almost like the, the resurrection appearances of Jesus. They have that feeling of someone who's 
opening the where the front doorbell rings and they, they open the door still in their pajamas you know they just weren't expecting anyone they, <laughs> they they're shocked they're, they're not ready for it and that, that's how the gospels present these appearances and i suppose in some ways that that's as much of an evidence of the reality of the the authentic as there's been lots said hasn't there over the years about you know did he really die and all that sort of stuff but but the the just the, those who were closest to him they believed he was dead and gone. The tomb was sealed. They hadn't a clue how any of this was going to pan out, whether they would be able to, to pay respects to his body. It, it was done. It was over. And the sheer, as much as anything, the sheer shock for the disciples, and not just the ones in the garden, but the guys on the, the road to Emmaus and so on, it was like they were staggered by the fact that he was alive. Yes, and I, I think you know you mentioned you mentioned the two on the road to Emmaus. I think what I see, you know, you see the two on the road to Emmaus. They're leaving Jerusalem. They're heading out, presumably towards home. For them, it's over, and it's time to go back to whatever bits of life they could, the pieces they could pick up and put together again. You, you then later see the fishermen. They've gone fishing again. It's as if the, the magnet's been switched off, and all the iron filings are just scattering. But mm. then. That's the argument for the resurrection, you see. That's what you would naturally expect to happen. Switch the magnet off, everything falls away. So what was it that regathered everything with such energy and momentum that it would become such an extraordinary movement across the world? The only solution, the only reasonable explanation is that the magnet was turned back on again with a new power and a new vitality of resurrection life. And when Jesus appears in these resurrection appearances, he's going... Be going out of his way to show that this isn't just myth, nor is it um, a vision of spiritual realities. There is something physical about the resurrection of Jesus. It's not physical in the same way that we are, because this physical reality of the resurrection body can pass through locked doors and seemingly transfer from one location to another. It's not the same as us, but it is as physical. It's it's more physical than you and I are today. You know, that's the, that's the resurrection. And there's this lovely phrase where Jesus says, you know, I'm not a ghost. See, I have flesh and bones. You know, there's this, this flesh and bones phrase that is saying there's something concrete here. Yes. There's something physical yeah. here. There's something that is, cannot be written off as a ghost or a figment of imagination. And something that is willing to go as far as is necessary in order to, to show convince and restore those who needed to know this truth because it's often been said as you said jesus could pass through doors and walls and so on and so forth and and to move uh, you know great distances um at a whim after his resurrection they didn't roll the stone away to let jesus out because he could have just got out they rolled it away to let us in he didn't meet with peter because you know he 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 needed to convince peter that he was raised from there met with peter because he wanted peter to be restored thomas the same there is this sense in this resurrection sunday and the days that follow it that god goes seeking to restore those who have lost the plot Yes, that's that's the beauty of it, isn't it? He <clears throat> he doesn't go off in some kind of show of power to, you know, it's not to the Pharisees, it's not to Pilate that he appears. 
but it is to his own disciples who deserted him in his hour of need. It's to them that he comes back to say, not only am I alive, but because I am alive, you also can be restored. You can be back in the game. You are not disqualified as failures because your failure was pinned to the cross and in the resurrection, uh, the the new life has come. And, And I think in that sense, two things are on display here. One is the ultimate hope that we have. The physicality of the resurrection of Jesus is a, a display of our future. That Paul, Paul particularly will unpack this, but he refers to Christ's resurrection as the first fruits. That is, he is the first of a bumper crop of harvest of everyone in Christ who will be physically raised beyond this life to enjoy not simply wafting around in the clouds, but a physical new creation. So there's an ultimate hope that he's giving beyond death, And at the same time, he is then restoring his team to action in this life. He's he's bringing Peter. And and you notice all that symmetry. He's back around a charcoal fire Mm. uh, where he denied Jesus. Jesus builds a fire on the beach and says, let's almost revisit that moment. But three times where you denied me, I'll let you affirm that you love me and I'll call you to follow me in the same words that I originally called you as if to say that call still stands. Mm. You're still part of my team. You are not disqualified by your failure. These are beautiful truths and they apply just as much, I think, to us as, as they did to Peter. The eternal hope we have in the ultimate future and the restoration that we have in this present moment. We wanted this week to explore the reality of Easter from the perspective of the disciples and of Jesus and those that followed him and what they went through and what they saw. If you'd like to find out more about the Bible course and the Bible Trek series of videos, including the Easter series, where you can find them on the Bible Society website, biblesociety.org. My guest today to explore this is Dr. Andrew Ollerton, who is who presents the Bible Trek series. But if we are to find, Andrew, a relevance for that which happened over 2,000 years ago and so far removed from our daily experience now, what do you think the, the relevance for individuals today is of the reality of the Easter story. You know, I think Western culture has been on a big journey, hasn't it? And we've moved a long way from a culture where everyone's assuming that they have a problem with sin and judgment and needing forgiveness and salvation. And so on the one hand, our world seems hard to reach with this message. I think we just have to acknowledge that, that, you know, being put right with God is less the priority for my most of my friends, then who's got the rights to the sports channel that they want to watch or whatever it might be. And so on the one hand, we have to recognize there's a shift there. But on the other hand, at the heart of the Easter story is victory over death, is a hope that even death can't take away. And if anything has been exposed in the pandemic phase and now with this dreadful events unfolding in Ukraine is that suffering and death are a problem that our world, however sophisticated and advanced that we've become, we have no further solution to that ultimate problem than we had 2,000 years ago. And it's only Jesus Christ, it's only Jesus Christ who is the resurrection and the life. And if he'd just said that, that would have been hard to believe. But he's shown that 
by dying and rising again. And I think we as Christians, we need to get our confidence back that regardless of what's trending on social media and regardless of what other entertainment's available on various platforms, we still have the one answer that delivers on its promise to give life in this life and for eternity. We need to get our confidence back. I'd encourage Christians this Easter to share that hope and share that faith with a new boldness because our world needs it more than ever. And actually, as I've, you know, I, I speak to people as side the four walls of the church regularly. I play football with some guys and, you know, we've had some conversations re- recently and actually hope in the face of death still speaks today. And actually a peace with God. I know not that they're necessarily thinking that's what they need, but when you explain what that means and how that transforms you through my own story, it still has a compelling edge to it. And we need to get our confidence back. Andrew is, as I said, the driving force behind the Bible Society's Bible Trek series. He's also the author of the Bible course. Andrew, it's been great to speak to you today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Paul. And I'm Paul Hammond. Join me next week for another Life Issues. And between now and then, let's take time to realise just how significant this season is for the lives that we are living now and for the hope that those around us need to find. Ta-da! Ta-da!